Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you. We are going to be jumping into the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31. And Proverbs is like an old school leadership manual. It's an ancient version of how to win friends and influence people, or the seven uh, highly effective habits of resourceful people, something to that effect. I can't remember the title. But it's, it's, a, it's an ancient leadership guide, except Proverbs defines success at the juncture between applying God's will to all the various nooks and crannies of this broken world. That's how Proverbs defines success. And the book actually asks a really big question. It begs this question, how can I become royal? How can we be men and women that are kingly and queenly? How can I become a standard bearer in my sphere of influence, family, neighborhoods, community? That's sort of the question that lingers in the background of Book of Proverbs that it seeks to answer. And it's within that nexus of question and answer that King Lemuel is dropped here at the end of the book. Now, we don't have any record of Lemuel outside of the Book of Proverbs, and most likely he's a proselyte. He's somebody who has converted from another people group to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And what's fascinating about Lemuel is that the way he is is placed in the book of Proverbs, how this oracle that his mom taught him sort of caps out the whole thing, is he's the only other king mentioned in the the book of Proverbs. He's the only other king we authoritatively hear from. The basis of the book of Proverbs authority rests on Solomon, And there are plenty of proverbs about how to become a king, what kings do. And King Hezekiah's wise men are mentioned as sort of collecting and assorting various proverbs at one point. But Lemuel is the only other king that we hear from in the book of Proverbs. And so when we we follow the, the big stroke narrative flow of the book of Proverbs from the instructions to young courtiers in chapters one to nine of how do I make it in the court, to the various proverbs that these young courtiers are supposed to master in chapters 10 to 30, and then we get to Lemuel, he is positioned in such a way in the book of Proverbs that he's like a graduate, for lack of a better word. King Lemuel is a graduate of Solomon's school of wisdom. He's the only, he's made it. He's someone who, through the narrative arc, has applied himself to all the things that we find in chapters 1 to 30, and he's made it to the top. But what are the two things that this guy who has made it to the top are reminded about? He's reminded about generosity and justice and marriage and family. Generosity and justice and marriage and family. Those are the two things that this graduate par excellence is reminded about. Which is really encouraging for those of us that have young or you know, teenaged kids. Because if this guy who is the cream of the crop still need to be reminded about family and how to manage his household... That takes a lot of pressure off us when we realize that we still don't know what we're doing a lot of the time. But I recognize there's, there's other groups of people who are coming from different stations in life. Some of you are unmarried, you're single, and you're thinking, oh, great, what does this passage have to say to me? It's a marriage and family talk, blah, blah, blah. But Lemuel is actually an un... He, Lemuel's a bachelor. He's a bachelor king. This oracle he's recounting is what his mom said to him when he was ruling but unmarried. And so if you're single, if you're unmarried, even if you're really young, you're actually the original author's original audience. This passage is targeted to you. 
The other uh, station in life that it may be hard to relate to this passage is some of you have had families. Some of you have been married. And either through death or divorce or disability or any number of other things, you don't have the beautiful things that are talked about in this passage. And so as we read, it can be very easy to get bitter or frustrated or discouraged. And to you, this passage has to say that any good and beautiful thing about this family that we see here is actually ultimately only true in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus' rule and reign is complete. No matter how good a family may be or how difficult a family may be here on earth, each one of us has to ultimately place all of our hope and our desire and fulfillment in what is to come and not what is here now. And so with that, I'm going to read Proverbs 31, and we'll begin. Well, we have to remember that that poetry, especially Hebrew poetry, is dense. Hebrew poetry is trying to extract the maximum amount of meaning from the minimal number of words. That's how Hebrew poetry works. Maximum meaning, minimal words. So we'll read, and I'll pray for our time in God's word, but we'll also reread as we go through this passage. So look at Proverbs chapter 31, verses 1 to 31. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty, and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, 
and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is God's word. And Father, as we begin to dig into this passage uh, that's deep and wide, we pray that you would give us the wisdom of Jesus Christ, uh, who is wisdom incarnate and gives us these paradoxical virtues by the power of his spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Lemuel's mother in verse 2 demonstrates an incredibly deep love for her son. If you look at verse 2, she says, What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Um, the, the passage here, or the, the section here, she's asking questions. Uh, she's trying to get her son's attention. And the way that she's doing that is by reaching far back into time. She's going back to their current circumstances, back before she was pregnant, back before he was even conceived, back, conceived, back to her vows. She's reaching way back in time to put out this incredibly loving context with which she will then come at him with some hard truths about what it means to be in leadership. Now, the word translated there, what, uh, is probably an Aramaic loan word and is better translated like the NIV when listen, uh, the way the NIV traits it translates it. It's better to say, listen, my son, listen, son of my womb, listen, son of my vows, because in wisdom literature, the teacher never asks a question of the pupil, but exhorts them to listen. And so she's saying, listen, 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 because she's about to talk to him about some hard facts of life. And it's like she has two knobs right in front of her, two dials. She has love and she has logic, and she cranks them both to the max at the same time, which is very hard. Because a lot of us are tempted to take one of those or the other. We're tempted to fall into the love or fall into the logic and, and just focus on one dial when we interact with our kids. You know, we focus on the, on the love. We have an incredible amount of empathy. We're just dripping with uh, appeals. And we just want our kids to know our heart and don't interact them with any backbone. And they walk all over us. Or some of us tend towards the logic aspect, right? Suck it up, buttercup. My way or the highway. This is the way things are. And we talk about the true pointy realities of life, but we do so in such a way that our kids are left wondering if we even care about them. But she refuses to play that game. She refuses to pit these two paradoxical things against each other and instead goes max on both of them. And it's incredibly effective. We actually know that it's incredibly effective because it's been recorded for us in the scriptures. God thought these results were so valuable that he superintended his spirit to inspire this message and bring it all the way from then to today. And Lemuel remembers what his mom said. He didn't block her out. He didn't ignore her. It didn't go into the memory bank of his mind and exit out as the things I'm never going to pay attention to again that mom and dad said. No, this stuck with them because of her brilliant methodology of love and logic. And so in verses 3 to 9, she goes to talk to him about some of the harsh realities of leadership. She says, Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty, and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor. She's landing on 
two things that how she wants her son to conduct himself in the public sphere. That's sobriety and monogamy. Because the opposites of those are so readily available uh, to any leader in his day and our day that they can easy, easily derail any course of action. She says, listen, it's really dangerous to run from all the pressures of being a ruler and escape into pleasure. It can be very tempting for those who are in power leadership to run away from the difficulties of that into pleasure, albeit alcohol or sexual promiscuity. She says, listen, those are going to destroy you. Don't do it. They're going to destroy you. And then she goes on to talk about his responsibility for leadership for those that are under him in verses 8 and 9. She's saying, don't open your mouth to ingest a ton of, of alcohol, but open your mouth to speak for those who can't. Uh, when, when Natasha and I were in Lancaster, we were at a beautiful church that we loved called New City Fellowship. And the goal of New City was to be a place where anybody could come. Uh, it was in a rougher part of town, and we had everybody from doctors to guys who were staying at the homeless mission around the corner, sitting in the seats, worshiping side by side with one another each and every Sunday. And I remember very particularly one guy, Don, he was a doctor. And uh, another gentleman, John, who was in a, a great deal of trouble. And Don did exactly this for John. He spoke up on his behalf. So I, I don't remember all the details about John's circumstance. He was either facing jail time or something with his probation officer. But Don was involved in his life. And Don called uh, the, the other individuals involved in, in John's case and said, Hi. Uh, my name is Dr. Don Davis, and Don never referred to himself as Dr. Don, but in this instance, he did. He flexed. He said, my name is Dr. Don Davis, and I'm calling to speak to you on behalf of John. And he went on to talk to the other parties involved, and it radically changed John's situation. And regardless of where we are in life, whether you're a mid-level manager at a corporation or whether you're a janitor cleaning bathrooms, every single one of us can exert this sort of kingly and queenly responsibility and rule where we open our mouths for those who can't and we make ourselves available to those that are around us and under us. Every single one of us has some sort of situation like this where we can exercise these kingly and queenly qualities. One commentator summarizes this section and put it this way, actually. He says, The king speaks on behalf of the poor and needy because they are socially and economically too weak to defend themselves against the rich and powerful. The poor may be defenseless against them because they are too ignorant to counteract the obstructionist tactics of the legally savvy, too inarticulate to state their case convincingly, too poor to produce proper evidence, and or too lowly to command respect. In sum, the king must be accessible to the people and champion the cause of the one who cannot otherwise get a fair hearing. What is said here of the king is valid for each person in his or her sphere of activity. These are the hard realities that Lemuel's mother, in the context of love, wanted to remind him of. And then she goes on to talk about what every mother wants to address with their bachelor son. Getting married. Finding a good woman. And that's what she does in verses 10 to 31. Now again, in keeping with her brilliance, she does this in such a way that it's an acrostic. An acrostic is a poem that's arranged according to the alphabet. So each one of these verses starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, if I were to start singing the alphabet song, if I were to say, 
A, B, C, D, E, and then just stop. What happens? You, you keep going in your mind. You can't stop the alphabet song. You have to keep going to the very end. And that's what Lemuel's mother's trying to do. She's trying to just get it so deep within his psyche that it plays over and over again from the beginning to end. And that's another point of arranging this in terms of acrostic. Is that she wants to say, Lemuel, this lady is the A to Z. She's all that in the bag of chips. She's the complete deal. This is what you're looking for. And in this acrostic, she talks about the value, the character, and the praise of the sort of woman that he should be looking for. Value, character, and praise. And the value of this sort of woman is highlighted in verse 10 to 12. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. And two things are really important about this section to note. The first is the amount of trust. The heart of her husband trusts in her. You know, outside of this text, every other place in the Bible where someone's heart trusts in something other than God is condemned. This is the only place where the heart trusting in an object other than God is praised. And so what that does is it takes the the man and the woman and elevates their spiritual intimacy and puts her on equal footing with this man as a spiritually competent being and creature. They can trust one another. They can share about their victories and their defeats and their successes and their failures all before God's face together as equals. Also, She's stylized as a war hero. That word there that's translated in verse 10, an excellent wife, it can also be valiant. This is actually military language that's being applied to this woman that comes from the military heroes of Israel's warrior class throughout time. And the, the, uh, what she acquires there at the end of verse 11 when it says her husband has no lack of gain, that also right there is a military word. It's shalal or spoils. Like when an army defeats another army and there's the victory of war and they just cash in on it. That's how, her, that's how her attitude is described. One commentator said the surprising object, spoil or shalal, a military metaphor, implies that the woman has to win essentials like food and clothing through strategy, timely strength, and risk in this fallen world. She is on the hunt and you do not want to mess with her. She's one bad mamma jamma. Get out of her way. That's the value of this sort of woman. Her character is then addressed in verses 13 to 27, which is filled with intense paradox. Look at verses 13 to 27. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household. For all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. 
She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the way of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. There are so many incredible paradoxes in this section. She is so industrious, so purposed, at trying to acquire wealth for her family, and yet at the same time is very, very generous. She opens her hands to the poor. She's ambitious and foresighted. She has a lot of foresight. Foresighted is probably not a word. She's ambitious and has a lot of foresight. Right? She gets the proceeds from some of her home uh, merchant activities and then buys a field and with that plants a vineyard. That is a multi-year down-the-road project. That's not something that turns a profit instantly. This is a long-term deal. So she's a type A planner. She's got this grand vision. But at the same time, she makes room for other people in her lives that won't advance her career. She has time for relationships, and she can still laugh. She's not so uptight that she can't still engage in relationships. I mean, if you were to take a modern paraphrase, it might be something like, She spends several years thrifting clothes and items from stores in the area and and flips them on eBay. And then with that, she buys a rental house with her sights down the road for a multiplex. But with some of the proceeds of that, she makes sure she's giving to her neighbor that doesn't have what they need. And at the same time, her day planner is not so full that she can't spend time with the ladies of her coffee and have a good laugh. It's incredibly paradoxical. But most importantly about her character is verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Those words right there, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is the Torah chesed. It's the the covenant faithfulness of God's instruction. The Torah, the law of God, and his chesed, his faithfulness. Her mouth is spring-loaded with deep and robust theology that she can go toe-to-toe with the secular crank at work or the suffering neighbor who needs the right response. She knows how to respond because theology is so deeply embedded in her being that it just comes out of her mouth. And this sort of value and character results in praise, which is what we see in verses 28 to 31. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. The result of this value and character is a threefold praise, a praise from the family, a praise from the community, and a praise from the living Lord, whose face we operate before. And it's actually a response to the, the beginning of this oracle when Lemuel's mother had the threefold listen. If you go back to verse 2, we have a threefold listen, listen, listen. And if we were to follow along with what Lemuel was hearing, we hear the, resp- the result of that listening. What are we listening for? Praise, praise, praise. Results in praise. Now, it could be very easy to take this character sketch and sort of dismiss her as some gentrified aristocrat. Uh, because she is. She has land, she has means, she has servants, her husband's on the gate. Like, he's like a CEO, you know, of managing the town. That's, that's, those are big accomplishments. And 
you know, commentators have debated, is this real? Is this ideal? What's supposed to be going on? But the Bible doesn't just let us brush aside its wisdom, even when it challenges us so easily, because the very same uh, value and character and praise that we see attributed to this uh, woman of means is also applied to Ruth. Someone who was dirt poor, who had nothing. No husband, no job, no income, no land, nothing. Ruth had nothing. And yet, she is described as a valiant woman, just like this woman. And her husband is praised in the gates. And all the same paradox and industry and generosity that takes place in this woman's life is present in Ruth's life. So it shows us that wisdom is not so much the degree with which we are able to accomplish things in the life, but the character, the caliber, and the amount that we maximize what the Lord has put around us. Whether that be the destitute situations of Ruth or the well-off situation of this woman. It's just about living for his glory and maximizing the opportunities we have, whatever they may be, because he cares about our character. So what would it be like if our families, if our congregations, if our denomination, if, if we as people exercise these sort of paradoxical virtues? What would it be like if we attended to our children with both love and logic, refusing to pit one against the other? What would it be like if our marriages were marked by spiritual intimacy, or our hearts trusted in one another? What would it be like if our work ethic was marked by industry as well as generosity? If we had type A planning and ambition and foresight, and yet still made time for people. We still made time for people who weren't advancing those goals. What if we had robust theology under the tip of our tongue so that with Paul we'd know how to respond to each and every person with grace and truth? I think it would result in praise. It would result in praise from our families, from our communities, from an applauding Lord who looks on us with delight. We would be the sort of people that other people want to be around. We would have the sort of families that when our kids grow up and leave, they want to come visit instead of feel like they have to come visit, which is a big difference. We'd be the sort of neighbors that people would want to have in their community. But friends, this sort of paradoxical wisdom can only come through the power of the Holy Spirit given to us in the crucified and resurrected and ruling and reigning Christ. It's nothing that we can attain by sure willpower or determination, but it has to be asked for. It has to be given by the Lord, who is the greatest paradox of all. The Lord Jesus, who refused to handle us as wayward children with either love or logic, refused to pit them against each other, but did both, turned up the volume to ten, who calls a spade a spade, says that we must repent of our sin and our deplorable ways, and yet in the very same breath calls us to himself as the one who can remedy that sin with open arms and saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. It's the Lord Jesus who offers us the greatest spiritual intimacy by the indwelling of his spirit. The Lord Jesus whose life was marked by the greatest industry that was ever accomplished by a single human being on earth. 
All of, life, all of his life, he marched towards one single goal, acquiring atonement and expiation, acquiring forgiveness of sins on the cross. And yet, he labored so diligently with all of his being for something that did not benefit himself. He had to give away everything he acquired because he didn't need it. Jesus didn't need anything that he, he didn't need forgiveness of sins. But he labored diligently to provide generously for us who are poor and needy, who can't provide it for ourselves. It's the Lord Jesus whose greatest plan and greatest ambition from before the foundation of the world was to accomplish that work, to be with you and me in a new family filled with laughter and time and fellowship and love. It's the Lord Jesus who's the greatest paradox of all friends. That's the only way these, these sorts of values can be drilled deep within our hearts. The crucified conqueror, the king who was vanquished, the one who labored to give away what he acquired. That's how our lives will result in praise. Praise from our families, praise from our communities, and praise from the Father is when it's firmly situated in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it challenges us. Uh, it can be very hard to hear about a uh, top-notch, exec-type uh, lady leader, uh, and yet your word comforts us at the same time that shows us that you give us all that we need. Uh, what you command, uh, you provide. We thank you for that. Lord, as we go throughout this week, I ask that we would meditate on these truths, Lord, uh, that we'd seek ways to parent our children wisely, uh, that we would live lives of industry and generosity, truthfulness, that your uh, covenant love would be under our tongue at all times. And that we would look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. We thank you for the spirit that's poured out by your son who gives us the power to do these things. In his name we pray. Amen. Hey, Stan. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all.